Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode. Wherever, whenever, however you're listening today, we appreciate your being with us. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and a big thanks to John Davis. He did such a great job as guest host during my recent absence. And now back to the table with us today is Tim Cockrell. His recent sermon from Exodus chapter 32 this past weekend is going to be the basis for our discussion. So, Tim, we dealt with another of those very memorable, I'll call it a Sunday school passage this week, one that anybody who's been in church for any length of time, we know it, really speaks to Christians of all ages, though. I think that's a really important point, because when we read the golden calf story, it feels so different and distinct from what our normal experience is that it's easy to say, man, what were they thinking? Uh But as I was preparing this message, it just kept ringing in my mind, sin makes us stupid. It really does. And so it's easy to kind of shake our finger at them and ignore the conviction that ought to come when we study this text together. And it reminds me the scripture is a mirror. It's true. It shows us ourselves. So, well, okay, in that vein, Tim, it is very tempting, at least for me, and I think you made the comment here just moments ago, to look at this story of the Israelites' worship of the golden calf kind of in a vacuum. But when we look at it in the context of, of the events that immediately precede it, I think it becomes even more stark. Now, you mentioned on Sunday that in a moment, the Israelites turned from covenant faithfulness to covenant unfaithfulness. Can we draw any conclusions from this story that a a mountaintop experience often precedes a great fall? Well, I mean, we certainly see that pattern in scripture, don't we? And I think the thing that I would say in response to that question is it's not the fault of the mountaintop experience. It's not even necessarily, I don't think, a a condition that makes that type of fall more likely. Mm Mm-hmm. I think what we recognize is that we as human beings are sinful and fickle people. And so I tried to draw out this pattern a little bit on Sunday that you see Adam and Eve experiencing intimacy with God and promises from God as well as warnings from God in Genesis 2. And in the very next chapter, they're taking the fruit and eating it and sinning against God. We see you know, Noah having a rainbow in the sky and offering sacrifices and receiving a covenant with God that he makes... And just verses later, Noah's drunk and naked in a cave. Abraham receives these precious promises in Genesis 15 of a land and a nation and blessing. In the very next chapter, he and Sarah are coming up with a plan for having a child with Hagar rather than waiting on God's promises. And we can go on and on of Elijah on Mount Carmel and then you know, very quickly being despondent that I'm the only one that hasn't bowed to Baal. That when it comes down to it, our hearts are not oriented to love and be faithful to God. We, we may have moments in which we express that intention, but it just reminds us of our need for the gospel. It reminds us to be humble, whether we're in difficult circumstances or really beneficial circumstances, because we are just a breath away from failure. And I think that's one of the reasons why in 1 Corinthians 10, which actually references this whole passage, we come then to... Let he who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. I think that's a a lesson that's actually being drawn directly out of this text. 
And and my mind goes to a proverb, like Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, uh, pride comes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before a fall. Uh, better to be lowly of spirit in verse 19 with the humble than to divide plunder with the proud. What it gets to, what you're saying, it sounds like, is it's it's not the experience, the mountaintop experience. It's your heart during that mountaintop experience. Is it really right mm-hmm. when you're there in church or when you are experiencing great victory? Is it because of me or because of God? Right, exactly. Well, okay, so you, you, you point out there their wrong thinking about God and his instructions were was really where things went sideways. Can you share some of the ways that any of us might do the same thing? So maybe, okay, let's start with Tim, but uh, any of us, I think we can pretty draw some conclusions here probably. Mm-hmm. Well, I think my mind just goes back to Genesis 3 when Satan is tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. What he does is begin to attack God's character, God's word, God's trustworthiness. Did God really say, oh, well, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, then you'll become wise. It it sows these seeds of doubt about who God really is and whether we can trust him. And so when I think about in my own life, when there are those times that God doesn't feel good to me, do I still believe that he is good? Hmm. Or do I begin to say, well, maybe God's actually not being faithful. Maybe God doesn't have my best interests at heart. Maybe God isn't going to intervene. And then that's when my sinful heart says, well, Tim, maybe you ought to. You know, Tim, since you you see this so much more clearly or have such a better plan than God, it's time for you to take this thing that you want or need or demand. And wouldn't you say also that's the other way around when God does really feel good? It's very easy to say, boy, I got it together. Absolutely. And that's some of the most insidious sin, I think, is the pride that begins to feel condescending, self-sufficient. Um, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man, you know, because I do all of these things. All of those have a wrong view of ourselves and a wrong view of God. And that's one of the reasons why I tried to to help us think this through on Sunday, that when we are struggling with habitual sin, it's not just a matter of behavior modification or being more disciplined or having more accountability. We really have to get down to the heart of what was I thinking, what was I wanting, and what was I believing in those moments that led me to reject what God has revealed and to refuse to obey what he's commanded. I think of God's grace and, and again, that's what this goes back to, God's grace. Uh, it's only by God's grace that I have any opportunity or even right to even think about these things, mm-hmm. let alone experience them. Uh, it's nothing I've done. It's nothing you've done to experience the same things. Uh, God's grace is really where it comes down to. Absolutely. Well, Tim, you addressed this matter, but let's talk to that one who perhaps is waiting right now for God to lead them to a next step in life. They've been praying for a week, two weeks, two years, whatever it might be. You mentioned the matter of relationships. We also could talk about careers, financial matters, children, church ministries, whatever it might be. When it doesn't seem that God is working or answering our prayers, what are some practical ways that we can maintain our focus on God's as yet unrevealed will and to know that it is good, to know that we can trust him? Right. Well, I mean, let me just kind of share a little bit of some practical things that my wife Katie and I are, are wrestling with. 
you know, we moved here about eight months ago, and uh, the church very kindly provided a short-term rental for us as a home. And we said, okay, you know, we'll be here for a few months, and, and God will provide a home for us that we can can purchase and, and get settled in. And and those few months have turned into eight months, and and will continue to be longer. And even just last night, Katie and I were were talking through that, and just uh, she was re- reflecting on the fact that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he could have brought them on an 11-day journey up into the promised land. But instead, he chose to bring them into the wilderness because there was something he had for them to learn there. There was something about their their character and their faith that he wanted to refine, and there was something about his character that he wanted to reveal. And so I think we, especially as Americans, get so focused on the end goal. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we just want the cancer to be healed. We just want the house to be purchased. We just want the relationship to be reconciled that we lose sight of what God wants to do in us in that process. And so when we're in those times of waiting, none of us likes to be in a waiting room in the doctor's office or any of those types of things, but God has a purpose in that waiting. And so rather than pining for getting out of the waiting room, say, God, what would you have me to learn in this waiting room? That's a lot easier said than done. But when we do that, I think we discipline ourselves to say, God, it's not actually what I want that's most important. It's what you want. And that when I focus on that, when I seek first your kingdom, if you will, these other things that concern me will be taken care of because you are good and you are faithful. So the response to God, hey, God, I got this. I, I understand what you're doing now. Now it's time to answer my question. That's probably not the right response. Well, it might mean that you're in the waiting room a little longer. Okay. <laughs> I hear that. Okay, so let me let me throw something at you that came up during our Adult Bible Fellowship study on Sunday morning. We meet before the sermon, so mm-hmm. we're never sure exactly what you're going to say, sure. but uh, we figure you'll clear it all up if I screw it up when I'm teaching. But the, the point is, one of, our, uh, one of our grizzled old veterans said, you know what they did? They stopped singing during that 40 days. They stopped singing. Hmm. They stopped worshiping. Hmm. They stopped putting their focus on God and put their focus on their struggles. And it's very easy. And I like that. When we Mm -hmm. stop singing, we lose focus. Yep. Yeah, well, and it's even interesting to note that, and we didn't really unpack this much on Sunday, but when Moses comes down and meets Joshua kind of halfway down Mount Sinai. Joshua says, I hear something in the distance. It sounds almost like a battle cry, but I can't tell whether it's a cry of victory or a cry of defeat. And Moses says, it's not the cry of victory or defeat. It's the sound of singing. And what was happening was not that Israel was no longer worshiping, but that their worship had been redirected, that they were coming to delight and put their hope in something other than the God who had actually saved them. And so they had lost sight of the truth because of their circumstances. And that's one of the reasons why corporate worship is really important. Right. Because any one of us can, in isolation or the difficulty of our circumstances, lose sight of it. But as we minister to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we are doing ministry and calling each other to reorient our perspectives. And it often starts with leadership, but it doesn't have to start with leadership. The smallest boy or the, the, the least important man or woman there could have stood up and said, no, we need to praise God. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's take a look. And you, you hit on it. You didn't spend, I, honestly, you didn't spend as much time on it as I thought you might. Mm-hmm. Let's look at this matter of God changing his mind. Yep. Okay. Uh, 
here in, in this passage, or in early in verse 32, uh, we read that in the King James Version, he repented of the evil he was going to do. Mm-hmm. The English Standard Version changes one letter and says, the Lord relented mm-hmm. from the disaster he had spoken. And then the New American Standard actually says he changed his mind mm-hmm. about the harm that he was going to do. Now, now, you mentioned that God used the prayer of Moses to move him to action in accordance with his, I'll say, preordained will. Mm-hmm. I think this becomes a, a really important concept to understand when we're praying for important things. Can we change God's mind? Can let's flesh this out a little more. Right. Well, there's definitely some complexity here, and this was even you know just to give a peek behind the curtain. This was a conversation that we had among our preaching team, which meets on Tuesdays to reflect on the previous week's message and to anticipate the next week's message. I actually asked the guys. Okay, there's a complex theological topic here, but there are many other pastoral topics here. How much time do we think that we need to to spend unpacking this? And kind of came to the conclusion that the pastoral things really needed to, to be prioritized while still addressing this. I think we can see this example in the story of Jonah, where God declares, okay, 40 days in the Ninevites are going to be destroyed. And yet they they repent and God relents. And I think what this tells us is that there is at least an implicit condition, even in God's judgment, that if we repent, he will relent. And so when we look at Moses's intercession, he has this insight or understanding of God's character that he is appealing to God's character that mercy might be shown. As I said on Sunday, I don't believe in any way God's plan A was they're going to get judged. And Moses ends up kind of twisting his arm and doing some theological manipulation until until finally God says, okay, fine, I'll do it your way. I think if we have that view of prayer, we actually make prayer a lot more about us. Mm -hmm. Like I just need to have the right words or the right perseverance. And then finally God will give me what I want. But prayer isn't about imploring God to give us what we want, but rather pleading his promises back to him that we might do what he has already, ask him to do what he has already said he wants to do. And there is some complexity here because God is both just and merciful. He wants to show justice and he wants to show mercy. Mm -hmm. But by Moses pleading for God's mercy, he withholds his judgment ultimately until the cross. But what I think this should do for us is encourages encourage us toward faithful intercession. Because sometimes people will say, well, if God already knows what he's going to do, why pray? Well, the, the foundational reason is because God's told us to, he's invited us to. But the secondary reason is we see that in ways that we don't fully understand in God's sovereignty, he uses the prayers of his people to move him to the actions that he has already ordained. And what a privilege that is to petition God and to to plead his promises that he might work in the ways that he has already expressed his intention. When God suggests that he is going to destroy the rest of the Israelites, he's going to take his line through Moses now. If we go back to Genesis, when... 
Jacob is blessing and giving the blessings to his children, we see that he goes to Jude. It comes to Jude and he says, the scepter will not depart from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take that as a prophecy, a messianic prophecy, mm-hmm. that the kingly line is going to flow through Judah. Well, all of a sudden, God seems to be saying it would go through uh, Levi. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is God's a, plan A all along was to do what happened. Um is there a sense of some anthropomorphism? We hear that word used in a case like this. We assign to God human qualities so that we can better understand what he's doing? I think that certainly can be the case. I think when it comes down to it, God is so far beyond our comprehension that we are catching only glimpses of of his will, of what he chooses to reveal, but we can't understand the full full depth or breadth of it. And so we're catching a glimpse that, that God is, is just and demands justice, but God is also merciful and delights to show mercy, as we'll see in Exodus 34, and as he reveals his character to Moses. And so we don't really fully resolve that until we get to the cross and we realize the way that justice and mercy are fully satisfied in Christ. Good. And Tim, I, wanna, I think it's very important just for anybody who's listening. We all want our leaders to have it all together. We want everybody to know. You know we want the leaders to be able to tell, okay, this is how this works. And they're... And frankly, I've been around leaders who have said, well, you just have to understand this, this, and that all makes sense. What you seem to be saying is it's okay not to know it all. It's not okay not to understand all of God. And I even made this comment in our class the other day. I don't want to serve a God whom I can totally understand. Absolutely. Well, because the reality is we can't. Exactly. And so if we claim to, there's a level of hubris that's expressed there, as if we could could understand all the mysteries of God. That doesn't mean we should not endeavor to study his word and to pray what that we God, can know to exactly but that there is a, a spiritual and even intellectual humility that says god is so far beyond our comprehension that our understanding will always be incomplete our comprehension of him will be fragmentary and therefore we leave room for a measure of mystery in who god is and how he works that gives a simple mind like mine a measure of peace. I appreciate that. Well, it's interesting to see, and you and I talked about this a little bit before we went to the microphone. We see Moses' response when God is describing the sin of the people to him in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 32. And then when God issues his, we'll call it his apparent initial verdict in verses 9 and 10, to see that juxtaposed with his response when Moses actually sees with his own eyes I don't think it'd be called anything else other than blatant pagan worship from the people as he comes down off the mountain. So there are parents in authority, spiritual authority over over some. There are leaders in the church or anybody else who has spiritual authority over others who might say that this authorizes them to go scorched earth. I mean, Moses threw down the tablets he had gotten from God. They crumbled in pieces. I mean, that Mm -hmm. seems to be the picture we have. He went off on them. There's no other way to say it. What suggestions would you give one who asks, how should I respond to blatant disregard for God with my children and people in my church, whatever mm-hmm. it might be? Well, let's recognize as we even begin to think through this question that there's two extremes that we have to avoid. The, the first extreme is that we don't want to be 
all scorched earth, you know, that we don't want to allow anger to take hold of our heart because it is so very challenging. I, I would say extremely rare for us to have purely righteous anger that doesn't have any self-interest wrapped up in there. Even as a parent, there are times where I get upset at my children for their behavior, but not just because they violated God, but because they've inconvenienced me or frustrated me and what my expectations were. And, and so we have to recognize that if, if it's all wrath, then we've, we've lost sight of the character of God. But in the same way, if our parenting or our response to sin is only mercy, is only love and gentleness and understanding and affirmation, then we've lost sight of the holiness of God. And so I think Moses's response here reminds me a lot of what Jesus does when he comes into the temple. Uh, when the, the money changers are exchanging, they're actually excluding the Gentiles because they're extorting people out of their money. And Jesus becomes righteously angry. I mean, he forms a whip and he starts turning over tables. That wasn't Jesus's normal pattern, but it certainly was not out of character with who God is. And even God's own righteous indignation in this passage is reflected in Moses. And so I think what I would say is we have to have a measure of the sense of urgency. Just yesterday, my son Judah, who's five years old, was out in the parking lot here at the church, and he was was running over towards Cedar Street. And I, I said, Judah, stop, but he kept running. And my voice changed. It began, it increased in volume and intensity because there was an urgency to what was happening. And so I think we have to think about that even as we address sin to say our normal approach ought to be loving and gentle confrontation. But when that sin becomes high handed, biblically speaking, it is true rebellion against God. There is an appropriate level of intensity that we need to express. This is not something to be taken lightly. You are rebelling against the God of the universe. And apart from repentance and change, this sin has eternal consequences. We must not lose sight of that element as well. And what you're saying is the leader has to have the right heart before God to know how to respond at that time. I mean, God, you know, I, I'm thinking, and I've, I've got to give Moses a pass on this if he need, as if he needs a pass, but he's just come down from being with the Holy God. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he sees this mess and, you know, you didn't go into a whole lot of depth, but first Corinthians 10 tells us basically what was happening. It mm -hmm. had devolved into a, <clears throat> shall we say a drunken orgy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he is coming straight from God, seeing this and can imagine He'd be pretty angry. Yes. <laughs> and appropriately so. Well, Tim, each week, it seems every week, we catch another glimpse here in Exodus of Jesus the Savior. And, and this week is no different. You very appropriately focused our attention on the sinless substitute for the people. We saw it wasn't Moses. Moses said, hey, I'm presenting myself, God, if that would help. But uh, obviously God said, no, no you're, you're not quite there, Moses. But we'll see Jesus again in various pictures throughout the Pentateuch. But I think this idea of Jesus as the perfect and sinless sacrifice certainly bears repeating again. Can you walk us through maybe just even repeating what you said? It's just, we've got to hear this. Right. Well, I think it's it's fascinating to see the unfolding of God's revelation. You know, if we just go back to the Passover, for instance, 
The firstborn son in every household, including the Israelite households, deserved to die. That was a fair and just judgment of God for sin. And yet God allowed an innocent substitute to die in place of the guilty. We see the same thing happen in Exodus 24 when God makes his covenant that they, they kill an innocent animal and then they are covered in the blood of the sacrifice as the means of approaching a holy God. And so Moses, as the mediator, seems to begin to grasp this concept that a, a innocent sacrifice at times can be a sufficient payment for the guilt of the guilty. But because of the magnitude of this sin, he seems to recognize a bull or a goat or a, a bird is not going to cut it in this case. But out of his deep love for the people, and there's a whole leadership lesson in that in and of itself, he says, God, if it would be possible for you to forgive them, I'm willing to bear the punishment that they deserve. And what this is pointing us to is a new and better mediator, a sinless substitute that would ultimately come in Christ. And so for as heavy as this text is in terms of the idolatry of our own hearts, the deceitfulness of sin, the pattern of temptation, it also is a glorious passage because it points us to the fact that God knew our desperate need. God took the initiative to meet that need and God, by his grace, covers our guilt through the sufficient payment of Christ on the cross. And so I think we have to be careful as we study the Old Testament to not begin to just devolve into a sense of, of legalism or, or works-based righteousness, but to constantly recognize that their only hope is the same hope that we have, and that is the grace of God and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And you used a term, if I can uh, flip that phrase, it's, it's important not to devolve into that. It's also important not to think that we have evolved into more than those ancient peoples were. We still deal with exactly the same. And frankly, I wonder if we aren't even worse sometimes mm -hmm. than what the Israelites were or the peoples of those days. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thanks for being with us. It's good to have you back and good for me to be back and join you. I always look forward to this. Appreciate your good work. Thanks. Well, Tim Cockrell has been our guest for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapter 32, and you can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week. We'll continue our discussion of God's Word as we study Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.